This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week are Lindsay Kyle, a queer bookseller at Lighthouse Bookshop in Edinburgh, Scotland, and Robin O'Donnell, a non-binary freelance videographer, sound tech, and editor in the Scottish film industry. Together they host the podcast Maladapted, in which they read and discuss books that have been adapted into movies. And none of you listening to the show have any idea how badly I flubbed the first round of the bio because Lindsay and Robin are both really dreamy and I got super tongue-tied and it was very very amusing and you'll never hear what a fool I sounded like. We're busy over here in Edinburgh like making dreamy eyes at the camera uh, trying to distract Danny. It's I think it's working. <laughs> I have that effect on a lot of people. Yeah <laughs> just you sound not like the cat that has the cream you sound like a cat that is actively lapping up cream from a bowl <laughs> while talking. Yeah that's the Lindsay vibe. I am. Um, it's truly yeah. remarkable. Uh, I'm so so glad to have you both here. Uh, I'm so glad to talk about book and movie adaptations and to tell other people how they should live their lives. How are you two? <laughs> How's Scotland? I haven't seen you in so long. I've only seen you once. We've only met once. It's yeah. terrible. We should meet again. Um yeah, I I am good. I I think I am riding the high of the the cat that is actively lapping that cream because I had very nice uh, dates the other night. That's uh, yeah, it's it's going well. So that's been that's been lovely. Um, it's very weird, um, like undecided weather here, where it's like intermittently really rainy and windy and sunny and hot. So nobody knows how to dress. Um, you know, guys are getting their, their tops off and instantly going like lobster red, uh, which is, <laughs> which is awful. Uh, you hate to see that, but that's, that's kind of what Scottish summertime is like. Yeah. It, it, we kind of have the vibe now where it's like, if you're going to go outside, you need to wear a woolly hat, but you also need to be ready to strip almost completely naked. Like yeah. you need to have a bikini underneath everything. Otherwise, like who can say what could happen? I think the solution is just that everybody needs to have one of those little red flyer wagon wheelbarrows that make you look like you are six years old and running away from home. Uh, and that yeah. way you can keep four or five changes of clothing in it. Yeah, I guess. Um, I Well, that's a business opportunity there. Um, I've, I've got to go make a phone call after this podcast to my like NFT guy. Uh. <laughs> See to it that you do. I remember there's a, a really bizarre, terrible movie from when I was a child called something like Red Rider or Red Flyer that's about like two kids who escape their abusive family or like fantasize that they do through a, a wheelbarrow or a wagon that they can like right. make fly. And it was part of my very important pre-Lord of the Rings crush on Elijah Wood that I had from the right. age of like roughly six to 11. And I remember feeling so superior to everyone when Lord of the Rings came out in junior high school and just being like, I'm over it. Like he was a huge part of my life in elementary school, but like I've grown up, I'm a woman, I have a mortgage <laughs> and I work in finance and like I I've was just... into Elijah Wood long before it was cool. You know, you guys need to to shift back and get on to someone else. You need to and move on just, to I was just so over it. I was just like, if you weren't there for when the bumblebee flies anyway, I don't need you. <laughs> Which is another Damn. terrible movie that he made when I was ten. <laughs> um back to Lindsay, I'm glad that you had a really good date recently because I feel like our first letter 
for for all that it's like a, a meaningfully complicated situation, I feel like one of the things that the letter writer is really working with is this belief that like transition must necessarily limit your romantic options um, and is, I think, understandably worried that if she doesn't kind of just like operate along somebody else's timeline, she won't get love, she won't get community and without necessarily deciding in advance like what exactly I think she should do next, I really do want us to be able to try to like give her loving advice that comes from a place of like non-scarcity thinking, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, I, I like personally definitely have had like the opposite experience when it comes to being trans and dating. Like I, I feel like it's broadened my horizons, uh, especially with like like-minded people and people who are um, so like open and loving and caring and have like learned a lot about themselves through that process. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I mean, of course, I know it can be different when you transition and you are married to somebody else. Um, mm. Obviously, like that can bring a different level into it. But yeah, I, I still think that that's the the right way of, of thinking about this. So I'll, I will read the letter and then we can get into what we think mm-hmm. should happen next. So the subject is motherhood or transition. I'm a newly out trans woman, and I'm lucky to have a wonderful wife who has not only stayed with me, but has also been my unquestioningly supportive rock. It's been a whirlwind few weeks of happy tears, research into community and doctors, and starting to believe that I'm really going to be able to be my full self and be loved at the same time. My wife has been great about helping me approach this at my own pace, but she also came to me with a good point that affects us both, which I hadn't considered. She's always wanted kids and has always been upfront on that point. Even if I were to start taking hormones and then pause for a while in the future, that wouldn't necessarily counter the changes to my fertility. And because of this, she wants to try for a baby before I start hormones. My immediate reaction to this felt extremely negative. It felt like I just started to allow myself to hope when her support became conditional. I don't think that's her intention, but now that starting the incredibly long process is in reach, it feels so much more painful to think of putting it off for who knows how long. However, on the practical side, I know that she's right and that this is our best chance to conceive and that other methods for preserving fertility could be expensive and less likely to work. We've only been married for eight months and had originally planned to start trying in about five years. And I know getting pregnant now wasn't in her long-term plan for her career, so we'd both be adjusting our expectations. IVF and other methods aren't off the table, but she wants to try the freeway first. I know you can't tell me what to do, but I'm having trouble sorting through my feelings on this. I told her to come to my doctor's appointment so we could talk through some of our options there, but secretly I'm worried that if she does, I'll feel put on the spot, both with her and my doctor asking me to put off my transition. But the only argument against the mountain of evidence that this is the right answer to my feelings. I do want to have a family with her, and especially with her indigenous family history of forced sterilization and having children taken away by the government, I know that being pregnant and continuing her family is extremely important to her. Do you have any advice on how to approach this? Whew. I think I will just start <laughs> by taking a deep breath and saying mm-hmm. this is so much. Yeah, and it, the first time I read this letter, I like went through it and I kept having the answer to the question and then to have the next line be like, oh yeah, but this, and go, and there's more. Oh, you do have a very good point. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I guess my first thought here is just all of this makes sense. Uh, everything that both the letter writer and her wife have brought up are understandable concerns and values. I want to be able to help her think about how she can most usefully think about it. But nothing here felt like, oh, somebody's really wrong. Although I do have a couple of thoughts on on how she can maybe proceed 
uh, best. Lindsay, did you have kind of any immediate reactions to this one? So, um, like, as as a trans woman who is also a parent, like, uh, this, uh, I have a lot of feelings about this one. Um, I think that when you're just in the really early stages of coming out, as, as this letter writer is, it's easy to, and I, I mean, I don't think it's wrong, but it's very natural to want to try and fit in, like fit in transition with the life that you already have. And it, I mean, it's great if you have like a supportive partner who's willing to kind of stick with you and as, as you like grow and change through transition. But I think that when you're, are coming up against something like this where you have to like consider postponing the actual quote-unquote business of transition like actually like physically doing it in in a way that like you want to kind of self-actualize then I think it's hard not to worry about how that's gonna feel for you down the line because any kind of delay or, or pressure that you're kind of taking into account at that point is something that you can like looking back on all the kind of times that I've come close to to you know transitioning before I actually did it's it can be easy to turn that into something that you're very kind of bitter about and I would I would worry that like even staying together and delaying for unknown period of time to uh, conceive a child and ha- have a, have a kid. It might be something that is you you kind of think of, think back on that time as like lost time later. But I mean, at the same time, like I, I feel torn with all of this because it's like you were both saying there's no like bad takes in here, right? I mean, it's all mm. it's all stuff that I really sympathize with, and it is really important to to think about. And it's yeah to come to your own decision about. But um, this is kind of, there is a lot of pressure put on anybody at the early stages of, of transition to kind of fit it into whatever plan or life that they already have. And um, as we kind of alluded to with like, you know, dating, like having a, a love life that can, can seem very like something that's going to disappear or be much narrowed by the actually transitioning. Whereas... I don't know, looking back on all the my, my kind of previous life, it feels like kind of hazy. It's like something <laughs> that like, um, you know, you look back on it and, and you think like, well, why was I so concerned about like holding on to some of those things? Which is not, uh, you know, entirely the same as, you know, because obviously having a kid is an incredible thing. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of my, my immediate response to that as a, as a parent as well. Yeah. I think a couple of thoughts that I had for the letter writer, um, some of them questions, some of them just thoughts. You know, letter writer, you say, I do want to have a family with her. That's the only part, by the way, in this letter where the letter writer describes any of her feelings about the possibility of having Mm. children. Mm, Um, mm. And I I noticed that that came after a lot of front-loading about how important this is to her partner. So I don't want to read too much into that and say, like, maybe that means she's actually not that into the idea. But letter writer, it might be a good idea for you to just kind of sit with your own thoughts and say, like, absent my partner's feelings, which, like, I trust her to share with me. Um, You know, if it were just up to me, would I feel pretty 50-50 on the subject of having kids or not? Would I feel 
more interested in fostering or adopting than I would in conceiving. Um, as I am thinking about pursuing my own transition, does the idea of providing genetic material for a child feel distressing at all? Like, I don't want to, you know, suggest that it must, but like, that's a worthwhile question to ask yourself, certainly. And, and I think in this stage, you are likelier to want to downplay everything that you want because you feel lucky to be getting away with transitioning. And I, I really, yeah. really want to caution you against doing that because I think that that can lead to a lot of unnecessary pain. Um, so I'll just say, like, ask yourself those questions. And if you kind of come back and say, like, this is going to be maybe a harder conversation because part of what I'll be saying to my wife is, I know how important this is to you. And I'm also realizing it's becoming less and less important to me um, having a child that we conceive together. And I'm not sure how we'll find any workable compromise about it, but I'm not going to withhold the truth because I'm afraid you don't want to hear it because I know that that won't end well. I, I would kind of like go off the end of that. Um, you know, you're talking about how she's very much considering her wife and her wife's feelings and like, in general, I think as a trans person, like the first people you come out to who are positive about it, you tend to put them on somewhat of a pedestal and you tend to be thinking like, oh, well done. You, 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 can, you can do anything you want to me now because you've, you've recognized me as a person. Right. You, know? you didn't kick and me I, in the face. You didn't throw me out. Yeah, you know, and I have like um, the, the first person I ever came out to was, was quite an abusive ex. And like that behavior is very excusable when they have actualized you, you know, when they have looked at you and been like, oh, no, yeah, you're, you're in a binary, you know, yeah, you're a, you're a woman. Yeah, you're. And like that experience is something that gives you lots of happy feeling and can overshadow rational decisions about transition. Also, I, I think that if you consider it in a different way, if you consider it in the way of like, we're both women or, you know, we're like a couple who's having difficulty conceiving uh, and like come from that direction rather than this kind of assumption that like everything would be fine and normal were it not for the the obstacle of my womanhood. Mm -hmm. I think you kind of get maybe different answers. If you go to the doctor and say like, yeah, like we're not going to be able to conceive the like quote unquote natural way. Like that's that's how I would maybe be looking at it. But yeah, like, I think you're giving really good advice, Sani. I, it's a very difficult subject. Yeah, and none of this, by the way, letter writer, is to say that any of us think that your wife is going to, at some point down the line, say, you know, psych, I don't actually support you, or that she is herself no. uh, going to try to harm you in any way. It's just that uh, my worry is that you have received her, like, receptive uh, reaction as something that you owe her gratitude and, like, doing her a favor in return for. Um, and that will, I think, in the long run hurt you and probably end up hurting her. Um, I think what you owe her in return is reciprocal honesty. So she's been pretty clear mm. about what her priorities are. And I know you're afraid to say anything that doesn't align with that, maybe partly because in the past what you wanted did align with it and also because you feel deep sympathy for her family history and her values and why she wants to have kids in that way. Um, but, you know, as I'm sure you know, letter writer, and I'm sure she knows, you know, her family history um, is, is part of her context. That's not going to go away, but that's also... I'm sure she would never say, therefore, you owe me this. Um, it's just, therefore, this is important to me. And if we're realizing we're moving in different directions, we need to have more honest conversations. Because, you know, the, the other thing that came into my head was, you know, 
she said she wants to try the freeway first. And I was just thinking like, okay, so if you two do try this and let's say everything goes great and she gets pregnant in three months, is she okay with like talking about how like you might be starting that hormonal transition as she is getting pregnant and like Mm. what that might look like in terms of mutually supporting each other? Like, did she expect when I get pregnant, I'll have a partner who's going to be focusing solely on my like pregnancy rather than a partner who's also going through a hormonal transition of a different kind. And what if she wants more than one kid? Like that was the other thought was like, what if you get pregnant right away and you say, great, now I can go on HRT. And she says, I want a second one. Like, what do you do then? And that seems like it's better to hash it out now than to wait and hope if I give her three months, we can both get what we want with no muss and no fuss. Which I, again, I would love. I hope you can. I hope you can both get, I hope she gets pregnant immediately and she's like <laughs> one and done and then you start E the next day and you're both just like luminously happy. Yeah. And I, like also kind of obviously it's, you know, she gets pregnant. Like how long do you wait to know that that's a viable pregnancy? You know, like or, or what if there's like a lot more complicated stuff going on? You know, what if um, for whatever reason she has to have an abortion or it's not a viable pregnancy or, and and like, you sort of risk building a plan on this and then it kind of just comes down like a house of cards because, I mean, anyone who's had anything to do with people having children knows that it's like a very complicated journey, right? Like, and it's not something that you can plan ahead for. Yeah, and, and like transition can often be framed as something that is selfish and in some ways it has to be. And for, you know, a lot of people it's the first like, truly like self-actualizing thing that they've done in their whole lives um and that can feel really scary to have to kind of set your boundaries about what the shape of your life to come uh from this moment onwards because it doesn't line up with how that was before things aren't really ever going to be the same and i so i I don't know it feels like the the discussion about like being a trans parent that is going through the process of transition is like that. That is a massive thing to think about that is beyond conception, like, um, which is also like a, you know, with, with all the difficulties and complications that that entails. Um, in my, in my own personal experience, like I had a kid and, and transitioned pretty quickly as soon as I, I knew who I was like I wanted to kind of do that quite early so that my kid would would kind of always know me as as who I am but I I feel like when you're just coming out you you kind of also don't it's like you were talking about like you you kind of feel that you want to grasp on to whoever's giving you like that acceptance straight away and I feel like you you want to take some time to know yourself before you can like make a decision about parenthood because who you are you know three years down the line into transition might you might be in a completely different like mindset and like kind of place in your life like it kind of it it changes the arc of your life in really unexpected ways Mm -hmm. so I would I would just ask the letter writer to like think about that and try and maybe give space for herself to to kind of have that experience of of like yeah self actualizing before doing that but uh, yeah i understand the the pressures making that difficult as well yeah i think my last few thoughts on this are just um 
you know, letter writer, you say that your wife has always been upfront about wanting kids, which is lovely. And I also just want to really stress the like reverse of that is not like, there's not like a direct corollary between like, if someone's always been upfront about wanting kids and then their partner eventually realizes I want to transition and go through like a significant life change, the person who wanted something consistently and publicly longer is more right like I'm, I'm. You, you mm. didn't come out exactly and say that letter writer, but I felt like part of the implication there was like I feel a little bit guilty because this is a big change, and I didn't say when we got together. Oh, I know I'm going to want to transition someday. Um, so since she has been upfront and known her own mind about kids for longer, I I owe her more. And again, it's not about like accumulating the most evidence or the most correct points. And I don't think your wife is trying to suggest that. I mean, you know, there are ideas we sometimes get in our heads about relationships and about especially like conflicting or competing desires with a person that we really care about, um, where we try to talk ourselves out of wanting something that scares us by saying like, well, she should, she should have this one because she called dibs. Um, so yeah. I will just say again, like your partner, it sounds like has been pretty loving, respectful and honest with you. And the right response to that is not, thank you so much for being loving, respectful and honest. I'm going to swallow my own very strong feelings and give you what I think you want the most until I find it either unbearable or we drift apart. Um, like that's, that's not the right reaction. The right reaction is thank you for sharing this with me. I love you. I'm kind of scared because I'm not sure that we're on the exact same page. I'm going to go regroup and start to collect my thoughts and come back to you and we'll have another conversation. And we're going to really look at where do we line up and where are we different? Um, and as scary and daunting as that might be, you can't avoid it by pretending to want things you don't, I think, or like you can, but then that's just a question of how much you would like to suffer. So <laughs> I also think that it's possible for people to be generally like supporting and affirming of someone else's transition. And also, uh, especially if they don't necessarily have a lot of trans people in their own life, um, to think of it as like, well, this is like a nice to have, but it's not a have to have. So yes. it's okay to put it off in service of something else more important to me. And I think trans people are a lot likelier to think of it as um, something that has been deferred and dismissed for often many, many years. Yeah, I, I feel like um, trans people are more likely to think of it as going in for open heart surgery. You know, it's something like you have to do and you kind of are compelled to do to a degree. Whereas with cis people, it kind of, they sort of think of it as like having a boob job or like a face, a, you know. Like they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you want to look like that. It's like, yeah, but it's going to do a lot of other things. <laughs> yeah, and like, I don't want to say like everyone who transitions has the same exact sense of urgency about it. I just mean in terms of like, no, no. you are thinking about this in terms of like, this is maybe the most exciting thing that I might do with my life. And maybe that's how she's thinking about parenthood right now. And those things are in conflict, not because you hate or disrespect each other's desires, but just because they're not the same thing. And so you yeah. need to be able to think about them honestly. And, you know, again, not to like get into like, reversal mind games but i think people will cis people will often think of oh i might ask somebody to put off a, a a much desired hormonal transition for another cause in a way that i think they would not be likely to say like hey to somebody else cis like would you go on cross sex hormones real quick for 6 months it would really help me out <laughs> and again, you know again like i know thought exercises and like what if the situations are reversed aren't always really helpful but i i, I do think it's good to give that a little pushback. 
I think it's like very helpful in this scenario where you you have these yeah. two like things that are kind of being viewed by the couple as competing when they're not necessarily, you know, and and like yeah. Yeah, and maybe some of her perspective is, well, you've been doing this for so long, what's another 6 months to a year so that we can have a child, which is not an evil thing to think, but is maybe very different from how you might be feeling, which is maybe I've been putting this off so long, I'm desperate to start, or maybe just I'm really, really excited or something very unlike that. And so that doesn't make her a monster or bad. It just means that you two have different perspectives and it's important for you to be able to share with her. I don't feel about this like, what's another six months? I feel urgent about this. Yeah. Whew, I, th- I think that's all I've got. I would, I would encourage you, letter writer, write it all down. Like, write all your thoughts down. Collect your thoughts. Um, if you have any any trans friends or people in your life who have transitioned, talk to them about this. Ask them for their feedback. If you can go to a local trans support group and talk about it there. It sounds like she doesn't. It doesn't, um, mm. as, you know, referencing um, kind of researching, like, community almost. Like, you know, looking looking for it and yeah and that's you know i've been in that situation and it's it's very it's it's very strange and very kind of uncanny to to feel like entirely disconnected from a from a kind of greater trans experience um i hope that that will that will change for her um in the future but it's like i think absent of that it's so easy to like you were saying kind of take the the idea to just oh yeah what's what's another six months you know um, but yeah I don't think that the the t- going to the doctor's appointment thing is is necessarily going to help things either I, I don't think that's a fantastic idea um, because I think when you go to the doctor as like a like a group or a couple like there, there's lots of questions that can't necessarily be answered you know you can say to a doctor oh you can tell my my wife anything like but. That, that might not be something the doctor is like able to do. Um, but I would, you know, on the kind of positive side, if you do want to, if you do end up waiting, you know, ever since I started HRT, I, I feel like I've been on it forever, right? Yeah. Like, and I think that that initial sort of wait is something I just kind of don't think about anymore. So, yeah. I, I know, the maybe. last six years for me uh, feel like about 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I, you know... Um, obviously it can be very different and personal for many different people, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, I love a lot of people and I wouldn't go off of HRT for anybody. Um, (laughs) and so I guess, yeah, letter writer, I would say if you're feeling worried that you'll be put on the spot, if you're anticipating that your doctor will say, don't transition, I would just encourage you to go to your wife and say, I think I offered that prematurely. I'd rather have a conversation with you and me and then with me and the doctor. And then we can maybe have a conversation, the three of us a little bit later, but I don't want to, you know, put us all on the spot. So I'm going to, I'm going to amend that request. That's fine. That's, that's not a weird or a bad thing to do. You know, again, my last thought, I've said my last thought so many times, it's just my heart's (laughs) with this letter writer. You know, the only argument against the mountain of evidence that this is the right answer is my feelings. To me, that's really the key here. I think, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's that's the key, right? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. during transition. That's all you've got, you know. Especially yeah. when you're feeling yeah. when you don't know other uh, trans and queer folks in your life. That's that's all you've got to go on. Mm-hmm. And there will always be a reason not to transition. 
often great reasons to transition. Um, and so, again, that's not to say, like, you know, tell your wife, sorry, sister, and, like, take E tomorrow and never discuss, like, her feelings about conception again. I just mean, like, that That to me feels like the heart of this letter. Um, I, I just really, really worry that you are going to downplay what you feel capable of and what you want because you feel guilty because it's only been mm. eight months since you got married. Um, mm. And I just think mm. that would be a recipe for hurting your relationship with your wife, not necessarily immediately, but in the long run. If you agreed to something that really, really didn't sit with your deepest desires and you started to feel in that moment an increasing sense of alienation and a sense of, I owe this to her. I, I've got to just keep being a brave little soldier and like add this to my list of things I got to carry in my like heavy backpack that I carry around with me all day and like just grit my teeth and get through it. Um, I, I think that would end up harming you and harming your relationship in ways that I am sure your wife doesn't want. And none of mm. this, by the way, like assumes you're going to say, I just can't do any of this. But it just means you have to be able to have a conversation where you acknowledge the possibility that you might not be able to conceive a child together um, and mm. that you both have to be able to acknowledge it and talk about it before you can make a reasonable decision. And I will shut up now. <laughs> and yeah, good good luck. Uh, letter writer our yeah. like hearts truly go out to you um, you're going to do the right thing like so many hearts you're going to do the right thing and HRT is so great oh my god yeah it's pretty awesome it's just pretty great throw out a vote for that because it doesn't sound like maybe there's a lot of that in your life right now <laughs> I think we have three votes for HRT <laughs> <It's a good laughs> yeah yeah um, and I also just wish we could all live like 18 lives, you know, where we could mm. get to do everything in a variety mm. of different orders and, you know, help other people with what they want and do the things that we want and prioritize everything perfectly so that we never feel like we have to give up on something important. I wish that were possible. Sometimes it is for a while. More often it's not. And that is difficult. You mm. both sound like two lovely people who want things that are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but at least in this present moment and in this current mode, definitely move you in very different directions such that you will not be able to walk down both of those paths at exactly the same time. Yeah. And I'll just say, it, you, I believe, can transition and experience love. I hope that your relationship can and will survive this. It is possible that you two will come to the loving and devastating realization that you need to break up. And I just need to say that out loud because I think you need to be mm. able to say it out loud at some point. I hope you don't, but you might. I think I think any relationship w where transition is like a like a you know, factor. It's kind of a weird way to put it. It will change. I mean, any relationship will change yeah. over the time you have it. But like, especially if one or both of you are like you know fundamentally changing things about your bodies and your presentations and the the way you like exist in the world like you can't expect it to just be this unbroken continuity of the, feeling the same way about each other and being the same way about each other yeah and i think some of the hardest breakups are ones that eventually come after like one partner has transitioned and both parties really maybe more than they believe it to be true want it to be true that they're all okay with it such that they don't discuss difficult or competing interests or desires and then it ends up coming back you know six weeks six months six years later because of course it does and it's like neither party was trying to be a bad person but sometimes that desire to just say like only only a transphobe would have like a competing desire mm. here and so therefore let's not discuss it it's just it's hard 
Okay, so the subject of the second letter is torn up and tired. I'm in my late 20s and have worked hard to build a good relationship with my parents. I'm non-binary and queer, and while my upbringing was largely controlled by my conservative Christian father, they seem to have been able to grow up with me as I become an adult. My biggest issue is the way my mum talks about my dad, both in front of him when he, and when he's not around. He has terminal cancer and is now mostly deaf, blind and in significant mental decline, in part because of the aggressive treatments. My mum is struggling. She's always been the sole breadwinner and is always fully supporting my uh, sister and niece. No one but my mum brings money into their household or does any cleaning. It's been a battle for years and I moved away to get out of that. I don't have a relationship with my sister because she abused me as a child and refuses responsibility, but I'm worried about my father. He gets stuck in illogical loops and says strange things, but it's not his fault. I'm at my wit's end. I know my mum is in an impossible position, but how do I get her to extend more kindness and patience to my dying father? I don't want to generalize, but often the most heartbreaking letters begin with, I've been working hard to build a good relationship with my parents. And then they yeah. go on to describe the most upsetting relationship I can possibly think of that could never have been described as good by anyone ever. And I just think, oh, honey, you have a horrible relationship with your entire family. I'm so sorry. It will never be good. It will never be within spitting distance of good. Let's talk about damage control. Let's talk about harm reduction. But that's what we're talking about, not good. Completely. No good is here. I would say that they've done the, the right thing by like not having a relationship with the sister like i think yeah. you find a lot of people who will will have the position it's like well my family is very important to me and then you'll be like well but your family treats you like shit all of the time and like that step of not having a relationship with her not interacting with her whatever that relationship is that is good you know like you're you're in the right ballpark of what to do <laughs> yeah to to me like the only question that i think is important for you to think of is, do you think that this has risen to the level of like, your father needs some kind of a wellness check? Um, mm, or do you mm. believe that your mother would be receptive to you helping her find like more local resources, whether that be like a local nursing service or a senior center that can send over a caretaker some of the time, um, whether or not your insurance could cover some of that, whether or not you could help pay for some of that, whether she could pay for some of that, I don't know. But that, to me, that would be the the most important intervention to consider because I again it, it's not clear to me how exactly she talks to and about him but certainly the implication seemed to be that the letter writer is worried that her mom might start like lashing out at him and abusing him while he is vulnerable and in her care and I would mm. say yeah at that point think about like what would I need to know in order to think I've got to call in a welfare check yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I, I don't know. It's it's such an impossible position. Like, I there's not really anything. I, I think that you, you can do like as to a parent to your mom to get her to extend more kindness and patience. Like, I, I think that that is unrealistic given the current living situation. Like, like you say, it has to be something that significantly changes it. Whether that change comes from outside or not, I mean. Like, yeah, that can be a significant like financial decision, but I don't know. That's that's very tough. Yeah. 
And I I really get that concern given that he's in like the end stages of life and you're just like, Mm -hmm. I just want him to be able to die in like relative peace and quiet. Not like I want to try to make sure they have a good relationship forever. But, you know, I guess my first question there would be like, has your mother ever listened to you? And again, I don't mean to sound flip, like, but like, has your mother ever taken your advice? Have you ever given your mom feedback and she said anything like, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. Thank you. Or has she never done that? If she's never done that, lower your expectations and say something like, I know you're in a really difficult position. I would love to be able to help out, you know, financially if I can, whether that's helping you find a cleaning service that can come out once in a while or a caretaking service. But in addition to that, I'm really troubled by the way that you speak to and about dad. You know, I, I, I'm aware how stressful your situation is, but he is dying. And I, I don't like the way that you speak about him. And at least when you're talking about him to me, I want you to stop. Again, have your expectations on the floor, but say that. Mm. Yeah. But that's kind of I, it, right? Like short of... I, this one is, I, I find it a little bit hard to kind of get a complete picture of, I think, because I don't really know what the the deal with the, like the sister is in in terms of the relationship with the the parents as well like robin said like i mean yeah you, you got to set your boundaries with people that have have abused you like working hard to get a good relationship with your parents is is that's that's a heck of a lot of like emotional energy that you've already like expanded Upon that, you know, I was like the family peacemaker for like a long time when I was younger. Like I was involved, um, especially like in my early teens, like 13 or 14. Like I was involved in like very adult conversations that I look back on and think I should not have been involved in. And I sort of felt like I had a responsibility to the entire family to make sure that everyone got along. Mm-hmm. And then at some point that kind of, uh, it was actually when my grandmother died and like, I, as I was getting older, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I like don't like any of these people. They don't respect me. And we're having the same conversations and we're playing the same, you know, game over and over and over again. And like, why am I the person who's decided that they have to do something about it, right? Like, why am I the one who's decided that I have to be the adult here when all these people are adults and they're just living a crazy life that I can't change? And yeah, as you say, like, people... <sighs> They might listen to you for a week. They might listen to you for a month. Like, will they actually listen to you? I don't know. Probably I, not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get that that's really distressing to the letter writer. Like, of course, you know, to be thinking my father, who I have a complicated relationship with, is dying in like really difficult circumstances and his primary caretaker is like being mean to him or or speaking unkindly about him and I'm far away. And since I can't like go move in with her, not least because like my life is elsewhere, but also because she lives with the woman who abused me as a child, I feel mm. particularly helpless. Like that really makes sense to me as a position letter writer. I absolutely mm. understand why you find it distressing. And I want to be really, you know, I don't at all want to be glib or flip when I just say like, what's hard is that your father is dying and he's going to die with a woman who doesn't like or respect him and it's not going well. And that's going to be how his life ends. And that's really mm. hard. It's really hard even for someone you don't like, um, yeah. much less someone who you have a complicated you know, family relationship with. I am sorry, and I want you to be able to talk about this with people, seek out support as much as you can, mourn and grieve your losses, 
offer those two kind of concrete um, interventions that I suggested earlier, one of which is if you can and if you're able, offer to help pay for a cleaning or caretaking service just to lift part of the load and also to make sure someone else is checking in on him. The possibility of calling in a welfare check if you think it's risen to the level of abuse um, and telling her that at least when she talks to you, you want her to stop speaking so unkindly about him. But Mm. beyond that, I think your ability to make changes is pretty limited. Um, And so then the work will just be, how do you mourn? How do you grieve? How do you share? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Sometimes the process of like actually mourning, like it's, yeah, it starts like much earlier than... Mm. Yeah. And I, I would also say, like, if you want to really preserve the relationship with your mom and, and, and your niece, obviously, like, you, you maybe need to kind of make sure you know what you're saying. You know, you need to like, like you say, it's, it's good to like write these things down and kind of know what you're going to say before you say it, lest you kind of end up creating like a, this horrible tension throughout like the end stages of your, your father's life. Like if, if these are important relationships to you, you do unfortunately have to think about what you're saying. like, And you do have to think, like, will I have to cut these people off after this, right? Like, And if not, maybe you, you can come to some sort of conversation or some sort of agreement in, like, 10 years' time. Like, sometimes that's what it takes. It's, like, very sad. But that's kind of... Yeah, I mean, that was my thought, too, was just, like, all I know about the family situation is that the mother lives with and is, like, also the primary caretaker for the letter writer's abuser. Yeah. And mm, so my yeah. thought there is, like... My my guess, like, is that relationship sustainable on its and maybe part of the grief there too is like with my father dying, there goes a certain maybe hope I had had that someday as a family we would be sane, healthy, loving, safe, take your pick. Um, and then also that fear of with him gone, uh, then it's just mom taking care of my abuser. And I don't know, I won't, I'll have less of a buffer. And does you know, does your mom actually acknowledge that abuse? Is it something that she, like, is is willing to say that it was banned, or or is it something that's just not talked about, or is it something where she says one thing to you and another thing to your sister? And like, these are very difficult situations. Like this, it's yeah. Like I, I my heart goes out to you. I I think that letter writer, you are in a, a very tough situation, but you have made lots of very good steps to keep it a, an arm length away in a way that it can't hurt you as much, like, sadly. Yeah, but really the question is, like, rather than how do I get my mother to extend more kindness and patience to my dying father, which, again, like, you can have that one direct conversation with her where you encourage it, but you cannot force it to happen, and you can't force a significant overnight change, um, then the question really just is, like, how do I get the kindness and patience I need? Um, I, I think that's really some of the underlying stuff. And again, like... That sounds a little bit cheesy, but like what I get out of this letter is like, I have a pretty brutal family relationship that involves like, it sounds like a lot of bending over backwards to pretend no one abused anybody. And I don't know how to handle it. And nobody's willing to live in reality with me. And that sounds pretty painful. And I imagine that you probably could use a lot of kindness and patience for yourself, letter writer, and I hope you get it. And if you are able to get in touch with your father independently, I don't know if he has a cell phone or if he's able to use it. Um, I don't know how far away you live. I don't know if you're able to stay in touch with him in a way that he can reciprocate. Um, I don't know if it's feasible for you to like visit and spend some time just with him. If you can do any of those things, you know, certainly by all means extend him that kindness and patience yourself. Mm. But beyond that this is just a really hard situation I'm really sorry Mm. yeah completely 
it's, I mean, it's hard, I, like, not to like try to loop it all back together, but like, it's really difficult when we don't talk about the things that frighten us, whether that be, I'm worried I no longer want the same things my wife does, or, you know, none of us necessarily really want to talk about dying. And so we often end up in situations where death comes really abruptly or seemingly suddenly. And there's a sense of, oh, that's not how I would have chosen to like go through that dying process. And it's like, yeah. And something I find from my family is, um, there will be conversations about either my, my grandfather or my grandmother and they will be, you know, like, oh, well, you know, he would have been like 104 this year. And you're kind of like, no, he, he you know, he died. He wouldn't have. Like, <laughs> we can't, we're rehashing this kind of conversation, which is just crazy, right? Like, and yeah, and I think like that's the thing. Has everyone in the household realized that he's going to die? Like, it seems like you, letter writer, you really have engaged with that subject. But, you know, perhaps your mom hasn't. Like, perhaps she just sort of is in this situation mm. and, and so embedded in it that she can't see the wood for the tree, so to speak. She can't realize what she's doing. But being a, a caregiver is, know, is a very different and, you know, stressful and, and pressurizing relationship to be in as compared to you know being being a wife being sh- like sharing a life with somebody that it's that the dynamic of that if she hasn't had maybe open discussions about his you know the ending of his life and and his kind of declining abilities then you know maybe she's under just an an incredible amount of stress that she's not been able to really articulate with other people and so maybe that's why it's kind of coming out in this frustration and and you know again like i feel like i'm doing a lot of sort of bleak statements today but like you know there's a reason that elder abuse and like abuse of the disabled is like at incredibly high levels like caregivers often commit abuse um and when they do it is very very easy for them to get away with it um i don't again i don't know if this I don't know where to place this along the spectrum of like everyday cruelty versus um, like an ongoing abuse case, but it certainly sounds pretty bleak um, and caregiver abuse is pretty common. So we can, I think, at least admit it into the realm of the possible here. Um, and and oftentimes in those situations, uh, you know, the abusive caregiver leans on, well, I'm really stressed out. Well, nobody else is doing this work and I'm doing it all by myself as a means of um, deflecting uh, intervention um, or, or accountability. So there's that level of it too. To, to move out of the letter itself and, and back into uh, a sort of wider range of conversation, this really now changes my experience of having had COVID when I was in the UK last month. Because as you mm. two know, I spent a lot of time on the couch watching daytime television and like <laughs> every other commercial would be some British person saying like, when I die, I don't want them to make a fuss. I'm just a person. And like, don't, <laughs> don't spend a penny on me. It would always just be like somebody like 50 years old standing in the kitchen chopping up fruit for the kids and then looking at directly at me and being like, <laughs> just throw me in the trash when I die. Like it's all ads for cremation and it was my, all done in my the My mortality chipper. is approaching at a like fast rate. I'm going to die in mere hours after I finish chopping this carrot. <laughs> so chipper. All just about cost-benefit analysis. It was just like, just burn me up and chuck me in the sea. Uh, and at the time, I was like, this is too much. They've done like too far in that direction. But now I'm actually like, no, that's probably like a better 
place to be of just like talk about <laughs> it aggressively and too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah. Insurance adverts in the UK are like a special breed of like just people being like, yeah, I want to think about my kids when I'm gone. And you're like, dude, you're like 27. Like, what are you? <laughs> it's become, yeah, it's it's an institution in itself. It's, it's very cursed. Well, not everything is cursed. Did you enjoy watching me struggle for that segue? I got there. <laughs> not everything is cursed. You two are fabulous. Uh, and you two have a fabulous show together. And after oh. so much talk of like abusive families and death and stuff, I'd love to hear a little bit about fun movies and books. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, well, we uh, just put out uh, an episode on uh, a 1975 movie called Rollerball, um, which you may have heard of. Uh, I have a friend who's like really into roller derby and uh, she messaged me saying like, oh yeah, everyone's been telling me to watch like Rollerball because I'm into roller derby, <laughs> which I find hilarious because it's like this far future dystopian thing uh, about like this gladiatorial combat. But, uh, I think you have started like in the middle of the conversation about her podcast. Uh, yeah. And we should sort of maybe start okay, at the beginning. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Uh, Malad- uh, our podcast is called Maladapted. Uh, it, the basic stick of it, the basic idea is that Lindsay's a book nerd. Uh, I, I'm like a film nerd. Um, so we, we pick a film that's been adapted from a book. Lindsay reads the book, then we both watch the film and then we like talk about it and we try to put it in like cultural and social context and we, we don't try to be those like people who are picking at the differences or whatever and we try to talk about what the film is and what it means and if it was successful you know and what success is well, as an like adaptation whenever you talk about an adaptation the first thing that somebody normally says is well it was the book was better or you know like uh, there's there's like this this uh contention. stop scripted conversation that you yeah, kind of between have with people the two um but yeah we're interested in in the the kind of tension of of the, these different works and rollerball was very fun because it just feels like <laughs> any time that we choose something to do it's like we pick up a rock and underneath there's all these weird bugs um i feel like we pick up a rock and underneath there are like these weird bugs and then you start picking up the bugs and under the bugs there are like smaller bugs <laughs> and like suddenly you know you're watching like wesley smipes doing a jamaican accent in a movie called future sport which yeah. i mean is all available on youtube and we have never been able to finish because it is so terrible. That is uh, that is remarkable. I, I you you're right though about the bugs under bugs thing. Because mm. I am now obsessed with the fact that apparently Howard Cosell interviewed uh, the director and James Caan about Rollerball on ABC's Wide World of Sports, and apparently uh, audiences liked it so much that they uh, like barraged uh, Norman Jewison uh, for like, can you release the rights to the game? Yeah, want to play it. <laughs> Yeah, like, so the book is this this thing about, like, how terrible this idea would be and how people watch NASCAR for the crashes. Um, and then to have audiences reach out and be like, oh, yeah, we want you to start a rollerball league where people are going to, like, die. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, we, w- we want to, like, actually have uh, televised rollerball matches where there's a metal ball flying at, like, 100 miles an hour that smashes through people's skulls. Like, it... It's the the idea that people wanted that is like both not surprising because the aesthetics of it like have carried over way more than the message, but also just disappointing because <laughs> the message of the original is very solemn and serious, but like nobody. The, the story is literally called Rollerball Murder, if I recall. Yeah, the original <laughs> story is that's what it's called. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's not it's trying grim. to be subtle. No, <laughs> no. no. 
it's yeah it's it's funny it's like you know the the spectacle of the thing is is all that's kind of remembered at this mm. point but that's kind of been a theme with some of these like 70s movies that we've we talked about that are based on books like silent green uh all that anybody remembers about that movie is that uh they're eating people but that's not in the novel so that's it's kind of not what the movie's about like no the, it's the not movie's at all. like this really Mostly depressing thing edward that... g robinson being wistful Oh, oh, oh yeah. God, yes. I love that man. Edward G. Robinson, like, the, yeah, I love him. Oh, God, I, I, love I, I cry. Closer Rest than that, soul. Walter. Mm. Um, I love that man. Um, on that note, I think we're out of time. I think we just need to stop telling everyone how to live their lives because I think we just did it. We nailed it. I don't think we got a single thing wrong. No notes, A+. plus. Sure. I, I completely support Danny. Um, we did it. Could you say that yeah, with a little more conviction? It. Please, Robin. <laughs> Well, I can say that because my Twitter is uh, like on private right now, so no one can get angry at me. Like, I'll say that again. I'd like you to say that again with more <laughs> conviction. And we I'm got waiting. this right. Uh, we we've never missed. We nailed it. Uh, you've never missed. No one has missed. We got him. No missing. There uh, we go, folks. Uh, you are both tremendous. You are God's own angels, and you are better than anything. And uh, I am so so glad that I got to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being oh. here. Thank you so much, Danny. It's been like yeah. really lovely. I felt very welcome. And um, you're such a lovely person. And like talking to you on and off for the last few months has been lovely. Um, and it's it's lovely to like have this and to kind of reach out to people and read their problems. And like, yeah, it's yeah intense. Well, yeah. I hope you both know that I both like deeply admire and esteem and like you and I'm also hitting on you so as much and as little of that as you want to take I just I'm looking respectfully that's me that's the me <laughs> thank you so much for having us it's been lovely <laughs> thank you for joining us on Big Mood Little Mood with me Danny Lavery our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It's always like the difference between a couple who's like, we're a couple, here's our deal. If you like us both, great. That's great. I've never had a weird interaction with that. But the couples where it feels like mm. one person is trying to hide the other one and is like kind of hoping Oof. you won't notice if they trot him out later. It's like, <laughs> boy, if that ever works, yeah. it's not worth it. And also, I don't believe this works very often. No, um, I, and it makes boyfriend's not a sex toy, you know? I, I don't need him like waiting in the cupboard for me. Um, or just like, if you seem ashamed of him, do you see how that's not a strong selling point for me? <laughs> to listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.